Welcome to season seven of the Making a Marketer podcast with your hosts, Megan Powers with Powers of Marketing and Jen Cole with Gretemann Group and Xstand. This show is for all levels of experience, talking marketing, business, and branding with the brightest of minds as our guests. Lots of learning and laughing. Here we go. Hello, hello, and welcome to episode 138 of the Making a Marketer podcast. I'm Megan Powers with Powers of Marketing, and my co-host is the amazing Jen Cole. Hi, Jen. Well, hi. How are you today? I'm good. I feel like I haven't seen you in a while. I know. I feel the same way. It's so wild. um, Well, we had some recordings kind of front loaded. I think that may be why we haven't. But yeah, so I am excited for our show today. And I am also excited to be mailing like 50 Christmas cards today. So holiday cards going out. I feel like I'm like way ahead of the game. Awesome. (laughs) You're mailing Christmas cards. I'm mailing wedding invitations today. Uh, Oh, okay. The rest of them. (laughs) All right. So cheers to that. Excellent. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Our guest today is someone I had the fortune to work with, and his name is Stefan Slattery. Welcome, Stefan. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So Stefan and I, we worked for the same company. I worked on contract and then I went full time and then he abandoned me. And then I went contract again. (laughs) I mean, if I said I left that job, like if he didn't have anything to do with it, I would be lying because definitely uh, made it hard to stay. And we'll get into that a little bit without, you know, without digging too deep. But that was a great great little ego pump for me right there. I appreciate that. (laughs) Well, Honestly, it was like, I loved that job until like, you know, until I didn't. And I think you were in the same kind of in the same boat, like things changed so dramatically that it it made it a little bit more challenging. I do start a new job on Monday, which I'm pretty excited about with a a little known company called Oracle. I'm not sure if you've heard of it, Mm. but it's funny, too, because some people who don't even know tech, they're like, I know that name. How do I know that name? I'm like, oh, I don't know. It's like on everything <laughs> to do with sports <laughs> and, um, you know, like sailing and on venues and all that kind of good stuff. So I love it. All right. I'm going to read Stefan's bio. Stefan Slattery is currently head of marketing at Cable, a reg tech startup helping revolutionize the banking as a service embedded finance risk and compliance space. And before that, he was head of growth at VGS, the world's largest cloud-based tokenization platform. Before entering the world of fintech, Stefan spent 11 years leading digital and partner marketing efforts in SaaS, e-commerce, and consumer electronics. He currently lives in the White Mountains in New Hampshire and in his spare time enjoys traveling, skiing, New England craft beer culture. We're down for that. Mm-hmm. And loves <laughs> loves heading to meetups and connecting with other people in the fintech and payments scene. All right, I think that's that sets the stage. We've got a lot to talk about, so let's get going. And Jen, why don't you kick us off? All right. So we are going to talk a lot about event marketing today. And in our pre-show talks, you mentioned demand gen and growth marketing. And to quote you, quote, demand gen and B2B is dead. And you can't just replace the words with growth marketing, end quote. So we Googled the difference between demand generation and growth marketing. And we'd love for you to explain that quote. And then we'll just, we'll talk about the differences as you see them. Well, first off, I'm stoked to be here as a sideline listener of this podcast uh, when Megan and I were together at BGS. Like, love the content that comes out here. I've actually known several uh, previous guests on the pod, so I'm honored to be here. So, so thanks for having me, guys. And wow, what a better way to kick off than Demand Gen is dead. <laughs> Let's go. <laughs> yeah, I think, you know, for me, it's the same reason that like just there's a natural progression of new technology, right? And then with new technology comes new expectations and new resources. And, you know, I think prior to me saying that demand gen and B2B is dead, I had this concept that like gated content is also dead. And that really came on because of the fact that there is so much information available at anybody's fingertips at any given time. If you are the company out there that is restricting somebody's ability to just get the content that they need right now, they're going to dump you and they're going to go find it somewhere else. 
right? And I, I firmly believe that that is often the case. So unless it is like just such an invaluable piece of content, right? You just got to keep that stuff ungated, right? Maximize their time on page and just maximize their their journey on your site and just keep them interested. And then, you know, that just evolved into this idea that demand gen is dead because of, I think, just a progression of that same sentiment. And it's actually like perfect timing because I just spoke with another uh, fintech friendly like two hours ago. And we were also came to the same realization that like B2B demand gen is dead and dying. And when I think about like where marketing needs to go for lead acquisition, right? It's this concept of growth, but definitely not replacing the word demand gen or performance marketing with growth. I think growth in and of itself is a unique way to go about, you know, lead acquisition and it's equal parts, multiple disciplines, right? Like it is equal parts demand gen, like depending on the type of company you have, if you're more focused in the consumer space, or even if you have like a, a B2B to C product, like there is still a time and a place for, you know, uh, display advertising and programmatic display and, you know, investing heavily in paid media and in those markets. But when you're talking about like purely B2B, the expectation is so different now. People have so many options budgets are so tight there's so much red tape that like it is very much a holistic multi-touch approach for everything that we do now and so that's why when i say growth it's demand gen it's partnerships it's abm it's sales driven and like only do you arrive at closing deals after combining all those disciplines together. There's a couple of stats that actually when I joined Cable, I essentially had my own little marketing all hands. And you know, we brought together a bunch of folks from the go-to-market discipline, the operations discipline, and we just kind of sat down and talked about like where things are at in the market. And of all the anecdotes that I shared, the one that stood out to me most was right now, to close a B2B deal, you essentially are always doing team selling. So there's at least six people, if not eight people in the buying committee. And you need to have, I think it's 31 individual touch points by you know first visit to bottom of the funnel, contracts are signed. And right, wow. those 31 touch points are not going to be just paid media. They're not just going to be the content that I'm sharing on LinkedIn. They're going to be the fact that your CEO flew out to New York and you know took someone out to dinner. It's going to be you, Megan's going to love this one. Like you ran into them at the, you know, the cocktail hour at the Venetian casino at 2.30 in the morning and you guys shared a drink together. And like, he just remembers you or she just remembers you because they ran into you. So I think like it very much is a holistic approach to marketing and just trying to say that I'm going to drive X amount of marketing source pipeline from my email, my paid media, my content syndication campaigns just is probably not the right way to go about it. And like, again, I'm not saying that this is unilateral across the board, but I think we're going to see it probably become more and more commonplace pretty soon. It's funny because I was seriously having a conversation that's very similar to this. I believe just last night I was at a networking event um, and we were talking about the importance of brands getting out and about and making relationships and then, you know, building trust and all of that kind of stuff. And <laughs> it's funny because we were literally saying a lot of the same things that you were saying. We just didn't really have that realization of what you're talking about, you know, with what demand gen being <laughs> like dying. So it's like we had the idea. We didn't have this, what you're saying. And so that's yeah. so fun to apply. <laughs> Yeah. And like, you know, to all my demand gen marketers out there, like, I'm certainly not saying that like the discipline goes away. It's just that we need to incorporate all the stuff that we already do, but just yeah. double down on it. Right. Yeah. Like, Megan will attest to this and some of my other former uh, BGSers, you know, and even, and even before I was at BGS, like I felt very firmly in the belief that like everybody who works in the demand gen capacity also should be you know, almost a product marketing expert in their own discipline. Because if you're a demand gen marketer, like you have to know the product in and out to be able to effectively create compelling content, contextual content to also be agile and be quick on your feet. So, you know, every demand gen person also has product marketing chops. And it's just about like, how do you kind of future proof yourself and your organization and just start to roll in other disciplines? Well, and the Google you know, includes Google. <laughs> Google includes in demand gen and would I think would include events, right? So 
it says, demand generation is a data-driven marketing strategy focused on driving awareness and interest in an organization's products and services with the ultimate goal of developing long-term customer engagement, blah, blah, blah. But it includes lead capture, lead nurturing, and pipeline acceleration, which I would argue those are all things that events do, right? You gather leads, you nurture leads, you accelerate pipeline if you're doing it right. And we'll get into that. <laughs> and then so a go-to-market team, then would you say is like the umbrella over like over all of those things and sales and who's it part of go to market? Cause I know we had go to market meetings and RevOps was included and accounting was included and that kind of stuff. So like, what do you think? Yeah. I mean, I, I think essentially anybody that has the opportunity to be customer facing at any given time needs to be included in the go to market team because they all have experiences, opinions, et cetera. Where I have seen the teams assembled is obviously marketing, obviously sales, the RevOps team, is a critical extension of the marketing and sales teams at this point. Like I don't go through a single week where I don't meet, you know, five, six times with my RevOps team. And then when we also talk about go to market, then when we talk about events, I'll double down on this. Customer success has to be just such an integral part of the go to market team. You know, after that sales cycle, I mean, they are the face of the company. And like there's so many insights that we would lose out on both just you know behind the scenes on Slack or over email, but also you know potential marketing ideas and event ideas, and also like boots on the ground, just availability and, and content that the customer success team can provide. So like 100% their involvement. And then you know depending on what kind of industry you're in, you know I find myself aligning always with you know tech-focused companies. Whenever I start at a new organization, I always align myself with the people on the the product and the technical teams. Because I want to know like what they're thinking about when they build the thing that I'm supposed to market. Like what was the origin story behind how you built this in why? And then you start to get into the psychology of marketing and like hardcore UX and like that stuff is really exciting. So whenever you have the opportunity to bring someone in from a technical discipline, whether they're someone from the developer experience role or you know, even just a full stack engineer that knows marketing and, and is, you know, excited to talk about this stuff, right? I like having them in the room because they bring a totally different perspective that I think if you were just running with a marketing and sales team to run your your go to market, you would miss out on some some really good nuggets. No, for sure. And I, I think it's awesome that you want to get to know the product so well, because I think that that can get lost by marketing folks, um, especially if you're if you're an individual contributor, because you're not just managing the functions, you're actually doing the work. So I love that. That's awesome. OK, so let's talk a little bit about I mentioned when we worked together at VGS, you needed some support on our trade show participation that the company had committed to in 22, which then led to an opportunity in 23. Things evolved quite a bit as I mentioned. So in terms of plans and leadership having varying opinions on, on the value of events. So I want to start with the overall view on events and event marketing. Are they different? Because you actually did distinguish, you said events and event marketing in one of our messages. So, and then how marketing leadership is approaching spending budget on events. Like as head of marketing for a startup, you likely have kind of a different perspective on this currently, but let's talk overall, big picture. Like how do you see the value of events in the marketing mix? Yeah. So I think what I'll do is I'll kind of just like write off, you know, anybody that's got millions of dollars to spend on events, right? So if like, if you're talking about the JP Morgans or the Oracles or, you know, even the crowd strikes for that matter, like, let's just forget about that for a minute. Cause you know, that's, that's big money. And, and there's, there's definitely a different type of calculus that goes into how they run events. Right. When I think about Right. Like it's so personal, right? It's got to be the right fit for your company at any given time. And so I think there's a lot of outside pressures. Some are macroeconomic, some are microeconomic, some are just, you know, the where we're at with kind of the the full macroeconomic environment. People are pulling budgets back. There's more scrutiny on this, there's more scrutiny on that. But I think full stop. Events absolutely have a place in everybody's marketing mix. Now, that's going to change depending on what it is that you sell, obviously. If you have a more kind of approachable self-service product, right, you can probably get better traction with, you know, doing more, you know, typical sponsorship 
you know, show floor booth activations because it's a pretty low friction point, low barrier of entry. If it's a self-service PLG type of product, it's probably going to have a significantly shorter sales cycle and there's not going to be as much red tape. So like that gives you a pretty easy way to acquire leads, get them through the sales cycle and the funnel easily and potentially fast track them to signing up your product. When, when we talk about companies that don't have that and it's fully sales led, I think part of the problem now is, right, we had COVID. Everybody was on Zoom. Everybody tried to figure out how to do, you know, virtual events. I think, you know, shout out to HubSpot for when they did, you know, HubSpot inbound virtually. Like, I really enjoyed that environment because it felt fun. Like, it felt like an event. You know, I had my little avatar and I could walk by the the food trucks on Lawn on D and like, it was, it was cool. Fast forward to now you know, everybody went through this like honeymoon phase of, you know, oh my gosh, I can go back in person and like, I can hang out with my people. And then it just became like, well, people think that events are a fast track to, you know, money, fast track to to profit and revenue. And how can I just get maximum number of people to go to my event? And then if somebody saw another organizer getting success, then they were like, well, how could we put together our event? And so I'm certainly not shaming events, but I do think that like, I'll just use, you know, uh, FinTech as an example. You know, last year I tracked something like 45 to 55 like different FinTech or payments related events happening between North America, UK and Europe. And, you know, as a, you know, we were, VGS is still essentially a late stage startup for all intents and purposes. So like that's a lot of decision-making that you have to go. Do I need to be, where do I need to spend my time, my money, my resources, et cetera? So that that becomes you know, in and of itself an exercise. But then you also have to think about the people that you want to meet with. They're thinking the same thing because now they have to decide, where am I going to fly out to? Where am I going to buy a ticket to to go and shop at these different solution vendors? And now like you have kind of these two, you're hoping that both sides of the same coin are going to meet at the same event. And so, you know, I think a lot of people experienced misses this year and last year with events that they thought were going to be successful and just didn't end up being successful. And I think it's not because the event was just not good. I think that it's probably just an unfortunate circumstance where you missed the person you want to meet with because they went somewhere else. And like I said, I'm certainly not trying to demonize events, but I do think that like we really need to get smart on which ones we're going to go to, which ones are driving the most amount of value. And then like we just have to have that kind of emotional integrity to be like, no, we're not going to go to this this year, even though we loved it last year, it just isn't right for us. And so I think, you know, that's that's the first part of my answer. So like, this is going to be a long, Uh I think the second part is like, you got to get creative. Right. And so, you know, as you mentioned, I joined a a company called cable been here for about three months. And I, you know, one of the things that I was just totally infatuated with was how this team put together, like really bespoke high value activations that just happened to be surrounding events, but outside, you know, kind of the, the, the guardrails of sponsoring a trade show or participating in like, you know, one of the the sanctioned activations. And so like guerrilla marketing is still alive and well, and just like doing the best with what you have and just finding great ways to provide value to people that understand where they can find value. I think that's the other thing too, is there's a lot of people that have kind of come to this realization that they're not actually getting value from some of these events anymore as the, you know, in the event itself, all the people they want to talk to are still in that town. All of the companies they want to talk to are still in that town, but like they are just, they're not doing it in secret, but they're doing it in their own way. Because like, there's nothing more efficient than, you know, holding a hundred meetings with everybody that you wanted to meet with in one town and then flying back home and, you know, having, you know, if you're on the sales side, having a pipeline for the next 90 days, or if you're the buyer, just essentially building your entire, you know, book of solutions purchases, you know, for the next 12 months. So I think like site visits, you know, uh, I would love to participate in one of these chief line officer events that I, I know all too well. Like those types of things are are always going to be like super valuable resources that people can kind of tag in and tag out depending on, you know, their, where they are in their sales cycle. All right. Yeah, that was a lot. All right. So what I'm hearing you say is that there's value in events 
it sounds like you're agreeing with the direction that we went in the UGS. But actually, let me back up a little bit because I would say, I will say that, like, I would ask, okay, so we're going to this. I feel like you kind of made decisions on what events we were going to based on, I think, what we had done before or what we were committed to, right? Because that was part of it also. People who came before us um, making decisions. But also, I feel like it should be more of a, it should be a team effort too, right? To like, look at how did we do? But having that history, we need to be doing all the right things, right? And tagging leads from events and and tracking that history of, of sales. Like historically, how much, have we gotten any business from this show before? I mean, even if we have, does it still worth spending X amount of dollars in order to... So I think that there is, when you're a young company, part of the challenge is that you don't have that historical data. You don't have that, like, what can we look back at? And it is kind of a... It's kind of a guess based on just like you said, there's so many events. So I do think that time needs to be put into the like de- dedicating to researching I mean, seeing um, what can come of it. But also you're right yeah. like that. You just need to let let some stuff go sometimes. And it's like, it's just got to be right for you at, at the right yeah. time, right? Like if, you, if all you do all day long is sell into enterprise and large enterprise business, you know, sponsoring an event might not be the best use of cash because those sales cycles are going to be super long. And like, you probably have to wait and do a pretty long cohort analysis to understand if, if you got this lead at event XYZ at 12 months later or 14 months later, that deal finally closed, right? Now you're doing a cohort for 13 months. And like, can you really attribute that deal to an event that was 13 months ago? Or is it those other 30 touch points that happened during those 13 months that assisted in that close? But if you're selling it to startups, small business, mid-sized businesses where those sales cycles are a little bit shorter, it's more, you know, self-serve friendly. Like there, there is an opportunity there. I think this this sentiment applies to so many things. There is no one single way to go about your marketing strategy. That's fair. It's just, it's always going to change no matter what. Yeah. For sure. And I have another question later on. We'll talk a little bit about that whole what attributes, how do you attribute value if it happens, you know, a, a really long time after because I did my master's thesis on the topic. But that's an, we'll, we'll get to that later. <laughs> I think Jen is being greeted by her cat, but I think she has our next question for you. <laughs> I do. Yeah, Moira is so cuddly today. <laughs> oh my gosh. she's She gets more and more cuddly as we go on with having her. She's wonderful. Um, all right. <laughs> so back at it there, you know, there are a lot of different approaches. And I think that we we were kind of getting into this a little bit, which is exciting. There's a lot of different approaches to, to events, primarily with gathering leads and brand recognition, leading the way on the why companies attend events. So for an organization that doesn't see the value in the brand recognition piece for, you know, seeing people face to face at these events, what would you say to them? I think... Right, like brand cachet and brand recognition is essentially never going to be a bad thing. So, like when there are opportunities, like strike at those opportunities. Now, yeah. I, I get it; it's it's often an intangible return on investment. Um, so, I think we should never disregard the importance of brand affinity and brand recognition. You know, uh, literally, Airbnb is a perfect example of this. At the beginning of the year, I think they published their report about what they found in changing their strategy away from kind of a, a, a mixed marketing channel strategy to fully focusing on brand and brand affinity. And, you know, it paid out in spades. I'm not going to, you know, quote the, the report, let people go check it out. But there's a very real use case for elements. For anyone who's like, just trying to figure out where do I fit into events? I think the best thing to do is kind of goes back to what you were saying, Megan, is just get the data. Like start small, figure out what works for you. Like there's a lot of ways to do a lot of things for pretty cheap money. And that gives you repeatability. That gives you the time to ship and fine, et cetera. So even if it's small little meetups, you know, or dinners, mm-hmm. like that's a great way to start and just figure out like one, if there's even, you know, enough of a demand to, you know, get that many people in the room and then graduate into something else, like hold a symposium in you know, whatever your target demographic is and like turn it into a thing and like just run it as a small little thing you do yourself that you just get a little event space to run it out of and then see how that grows. And then I think like be where the people are, right? Above all else, just be where the people are. If you're not ready to, I am also this person. I'm also 
get sticker shock these days with how much some of the, the conference tickets are. But like, if you're not ready to, you know, send five people to a show with a ticket that costs $3,000 a piece, just fly out to that city and just be there. There's going to be tons of other people who are also not purchasing tickets. And so like you can run your own, you know, little site visit and run your meetings there. So that's what I'd say. Start small, figure out what works for you, and then just repeat the things that work. And then when you do have a little bit of extra money that you can test things with, like don't be afraid to test, right? The worst thing that can happen is that you get your brand out there, right? And as we said at the beginning of that question, brand affinity and brand marketing is never a bad thing. Yeah, I've seen some brands do some pretty cool things that are very similar to what you're talking about. Like there was one time where Quick came out, they're based here in Wichita, they're an auto caption company. And they came out to social media marketing world as a team, but they didn't sponsor social media marketing world. But instead, they had my friend and I couple up and uh, they sponsored the two of us gathering a group of our favorite friends together and hosting a party bus where like Julie and I were the hosts of the party bus, but Quick was sponsoring it. And they were providing, you know, all the beverages, snacks. And then of course, they did a pitch during it at some point, but everyone was like, trying Quick and having a really good time getting to know their staff face to face. And then I've seen Agorapulse do something similar to this too, where they come in and they just sponsored a whole bunch of pedicabs at Social Media Marketing World. So they didn't, you know, it's you're just making your presence known and you're getting your name out there and you're building relationships at the same time. You don't necessarily have to be sponsoring or attending, but you're still present. Yeah, I, I would I, you also don't even have caution to you to be careful. I would caution and you to be, be careful, careful though. Yeah. Be careful because you will piss people off. There's a company, I won't name it, but there's an event technology company that did that. They had a breakfast that was offsite each morning of the conference and it interfered. In other words, it was like during show hours and they had exhibited before and now they're not exhibiting and they're doing this thing where they're trying to take people away from our events. So I just caution people to Good be point. careful about suitcasing is kind yeah. of what it's called. So. Our brain break today, we are recording this on December 1st, which is for some the official start of holiday season. Actually, the 49ers did a really funny video thing in the locker room with each of the guys. Are you a a December 1st or November 1st kind of holiday person? But today is officially National Christmas Tree Lights Day. So I think that speaks to the December 1 thing. So I want to know from everyone, are you a hardliner on when you can start decorating? Like not until after Thanksgiving, for example, or... Are you more flexible the earlier, the merrier kind of a thing? I'll let Jen go first. Okay. So, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of a hardliner this year. I kind of, I, I felt myself not like, I was like, how am I ever going to feel the holiday spirit this year? We're so freaking busy. I don't even feel like it's that time of year. This is unreal. So I brought a few things up from the basement before Thanksgiving. Normally, I'm a very after Thanksgiving type of person. But even this year, we are so busy. We're doing it in chunks. Like our trees are up. They're not decorated yet. (laughs) I keep bringing more and more stuff. When I go to the basement, I bring stuff up with me. It's kind of like when I have time to do it. Normally, it's like, hey, the weekend after Thanksgiving, this is when we're doing it, though. Okay. All right. Stephanie. Yeah. So I think I'm like somewhere in between. So I'm notorious for leaving decorations up well after Christmas. I'm not necessarily notorious for decorating on November 1st. However, I will say day after Thanksgiving, nine o'clock rolls around, we're in the car driving to the tree farm and we're going to get in the tree. Like that is without fail. So I will say though, that I think I'm going through a similar experience as you, Jen, in that we're doing it in chunks right now, just because we got so many things going on. So it was like, we got the tree and we set the tree up and we pulled everything out but that was it. And then one day we started, we did the tree, but then we didn't do the rest of the house. And so it's just like, it's almost, I am with you in that this year has flown by. So it almost doesn't feel like it's Christmas time yet, but the stuff is sitting there and, you know, it has to go up. So, you know, maybe, maybe tonight is it, but this is where all of the boxes will be emptied. (laughs) My gnome collection will be, uh, will be complete uh, as of this evening. Gnomes? Oh, it, yes. there's many, there's many gnomes in this house. Gosh, I, we're gnome people too. That is hilarious. In fact, I have a, a four and a half foot tall stuffed gnome uh, sitting right <laughs> by, right next to my desk as we speak. See, I That's left awesome. the four foot stuffed gnome in my divorce. I didn't bring it into this <laughs> relationship. I really wish I would have because, oh my gosh, I miss that guy. Maybe I'll. But and her favorite craft beer place in Wichita is called the Hopping Gnome. 
Yeah. So I got gnomified when I was there, when I visited. That was a memory. mm -hmm. Uh Yeah. That's very cute that you guys had that little little connection. I love it. (laughs) Okay. So for me, I used to get super irritated at people like, it's not even Halloween. How do they have Christmas? And then I I turned a corner, I don't know when, a few years ago, I think where, it was probably during COVID where I was like, all the joy. Let's have all the joy as much as we can all of the time. Who gives a crap? Yeah. When you start or when you don't. And so I no longer complain. And this year, because I've had some downtime, I actually, I haven't decorated in in several years, like really decorated, but I got a little three foot tree and I decorated and I packed, I brought all the gifts up um, Thanksgiving for, for Christmas to my family's house already. And like, I'm like, I was good to go before Thanksgiving even started. And part of it too, is cause I wanted it to be done when I got home. I wanted it to be like ready. So, and I have been lighting the lights and I will too, probably be a, I'll leave it up way after kind of a person. <laughs> afterwards. Yeah, I think, you know what though? I think there, there's something to be said for that, Megan. I am almost positive that I read some type of, I mean, it may not be a clinical study, but I'm almost positive that I read something the other day that said people who put their Christmas tree decorations up earlier in the year and leave them up longer tend to be happier for the rest of the year. I've heard that too. I think I recently saw that on someone's social media post. I think it's But then it has to be true. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. I love it. All right. Let's kick off the the second half. The second half will be, we'll probably go a little bit um, quicker than the first half, but uh, let's go, Jen. Okay. So we know you believe events should be part of a go-to-market strategy. What would you say is the most valuable thing that has come out of an in-person event for a company you have worked for and, or uh, even for yourself personally, if you can think of something to share in that, you know, in that capacity? Yeah. So I think the, the most important thing as a marketer, right, is similarly to what I said before, be where the people are, but be where your thought providers are. Right? Or your thought partners, I should like. I think it's invaluable for people in the go-to-market function to just go and be where other people in go-to-market functions are. And you know, I credit most of the the people that I talk to on the daily, you know, or, or semi-weekly in marketing and, and partnerships. Like I've only met them really within the last like two years, two to three years, give or take. And it's because, you know, we're spending time at these networking dinners or these cocktail hours, you know, or parties, like let's just call them what they are. And just like finding other like-minded people who are just interested in learning like what you know, like imparting what they know, and just all around just trying to help you just solve problems, right? And I think Megan and I talked a little bit about this. Uh, I've talked about this with, with some other folks. Like I have never met people who are more willing to just like hop on the phone and like understand like the pain points that you're going through in your job than the people in the fintech scene. And like, I have calls with other people, whether they're partners, whether they're, you know, quote, fintech friendlies, at least once a week, and just talking about what's going on. And so like, to me, that has been the biggest, the biggest learning from going to events is just put yourself out there because there's awesome people that you're going to find, awesome people that just are going to do everything that they can to help you and expand, you know, your reach. And what I would say for the biggest thing that I've unlocked with an organization, I think I'll use the most recent, you know, example. Um, you know, like I said, I, I joined Cable about three months ago and, you know, we we're heading to money 2020, which, you know, anybody who's listening knows, you know, it's, it is the F1 of, you know, fintech and payments events for the year. And, you know, there's a lot of work that goes into it. And like, thankfully I joined, you know, kind of like right in the middle of, of planning who is, you know, like I said, we're, we're a startup. We have a pretty lean team and like they put together an absolutely incredible program and like, you know, punching way above our weight class. And so, you know, we left money 2020 after, you know, the grueling four days and, you know, the dry Nevada air, like in a really good place because, you know, we maximized what we could do with those guerrilla marketing tactics. And so like we walked away having like something crazy, like 125 meetings or 130 meetings between the four of us. And like, it just goes to say that there is work that can be done there is success to be had, regardless of how big you know your company is. You just got to find 
what's right for you. And like, you know, Megan, to your earlier point, like you got to put in the work, but like everything's possible, you know, to quote uh, Kevin Garnett. And so, yeah, that, that I think is, has been like the most eye-opening thing for me. It's like, it doesn't always take the big fat check to be the diamond sponsor in order to have success at events. There's a lot that can be done as long as you put the effort in, you think through it, and then you make it yours. Yeah, I love that. It's always, you know, go in with a plan. Going yeah, plan. Go to the strategy, and yeah. I I was shocked at how much money BGS was spending. If I'm honest, on sponsoring and on events, I was like, oh, because I was like just not used to seeing that thrown around. Now it's interesting. Now I'm on the other side. So at Oracle, I'm going to be doing sponsorship fulfillment and exhibitors. So I'm going to be working with the people who are paying to attend our conference in that capacity versus being the one who used to you know be the customer. So that'll be yeah. interesting. But it's but, you know. I give credit to anybody that, you know, has the budget to to spend on these events. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I won't name the events themselves, but like we looked at some events where like to be, you know, whatever diamond, platinum, emerald, you know, whatever gem you want to call it. Like it was, you know, 200, 500, a million dollars, you know, to to have those sponsorship packages. You know, you're you're really talking about a different type of environment when you start talking about those types of sponsorships. But like that is a lot of money that can that can really go a long way with you know other disciplines, right? If you think about converting yeah. that million dollars into just creating content or think about you know putting that into paid media, right? Mm -hmm. you know, depending on your industry, like you might be spending a million dollars a month on paid media, but still like there's no shortage of expensive events. And it just it just goes to show that there is a lot that can be done without having to cut the check. No, for sure. And so this kind of, I'm going to jumble some of the questions that I had together based on um, what we've just talked about. So I, I mentioned that, I don't know, Stefan, if I ever told you about my master's thesis or not, but anyone who's listened to the show for a while has heard me talk about it. I was basically, I did it on face-to-face -face versus online communication within the context of trade shows. So assuming that you bought in to like doing the trade show, then surveyed, Exhibitors who may or may not be salespeople, attendees who may or may not be buyers, and then show organizers. So, and there was a big divide between the executives and what they thought was valuable from a particular event. There was a lot of, well, we just have to be there. You know, we're, if our competitors there, we need to be there. We just need to show face. In meantime, the salespeople are like, no, no, like we're getting business from this. And so like, where's the reporting? Where's the data? How long do you go before you attribute it to say that it was a successful show? Because I would argue, and this goes kind of against what you said earlier, like if I met you at trade show and six months later, or even a year later, we got business from that. If that was the first touch, if that was the catalyst, then I think that you still give credit to that show. Yeah. It took a whole lot of other work to close that business from when you first met them to when you actually closed. But like, it's like the genesis of how that relationship started. So anyway, I think there's value in there, but also within all of this becomes that sales versus marketing, who, get, you know, who provided the lead or marketing, getting all these leads for sales and then sales not doing anything with them because we all know like the number one issue with events is the lack of follow-up. So 70 to 80% of, people are not getting followed up with. And I've been on both ends of that. I've been on the, um, oh, I should say I always followed up. I always had, I had like a, a plan, but that happens a lot for a lot of sales and marketing folks. But also I have been the buyer and been the one not followed up with. And I'm like, yo, I, we had a real genuine conversation. I am interested in your product and I'm not hearing from you at all. Like it, it kind of, it blows my mind. So what are your thoughts, I guess, on, I know I just said a lot of words um, in terms of <laughs> like events, that lead to business, whether it's new or existing customers, this requires cooperation with sales. It's the tale as old this time. What do you see as a difference between like a marketing qualified lead and a sales qualified lead? And how do you recommend marketing working more cooperatively with sales or, or sales more cooperatively with marketing? Yeah. So let's unpack that. <laughs> no. So I think events can absolutely be attribution points. Right. But it all boils down to like, what does your team run for an attribution model? If you run a multi-touch attribution model, and depending on what you're selling into, like, like I said, you might have to just rely on cohort analysis for everything. And it gets really muddy, you know, at, at a certain point, right? And like, I'm a firm believer that, you know, uh, somebody seeing a display graphic, or, you know, somebody 
seeing your company name and clicking on a site link in you know a Google ad isn't necessarily what's going to get them over the line. It's going to be a touch point that adds to that brand affinity and like it's going to help you know usher that sales uh, sales deal along. What I would say though is when we think about how the teams need to work closely together, right? I think marketing is always having to I think be comfortable with knowing that like listen, you're the the one that's working the deal, right? You do not have, you know, your, you know, comp package, you know, based off of, you know, quota and attainment, et cetera. So when when we talk about like did marketing, which is marketing source revenue or sales source revenue, I think it's again, it's it's never a one-dimensional answer. But I think marketing and sales just need to make themselves available to each other for those types of activations. And so, you know, Megan knows this, but like when when we were running a leaner organization at PGS, like I, you know, I hit the streets and I went to a ton of events, you know, over 2022 and early 2023. And I think I did like over a hundred and something, you know, different customer and partner meetings. And like, those are not going to, you know, go into my, you know, HubSpot or Salesforce, you know, lead pipeline. I'm going to hand those all over to sales. And so like, I think marketing has the ability to be really good, really compelling salespeople, but like, we're always going to be in service of the sales organization. So like when we talk about like, how does marketing participate and how can marketing, you know, be an extension of sales? Like, I think marketers should feel super comfortable with just inserting themselves when they can and just like acting as an extension of the sales team. And like, if you can find something, like bring it up and deliver it to the sales market. You know, where where we get into attribution and, and credit, like like I said, that really boils down to, you know, what your, your team is running with. Um, I think like regardless of how any organization runs their attribution model, whether they have marketing source revenue or sales source revenue, or if it's all mixed, I think the number one thing that's important, and you know, Megan, you and I stress this at, at BGS, like we have to have visibility into what happened, right? Even if we're not going to say this event drove exactly this much pipeline, which then drove exactly this much ARR, I at least need to know what happened, you know, either in real time or in a cohort analysis. So I can go back and be like, hey, I should actually invest more time, energy, and resources into doing that next year because, you know, even though we're not saying this specific thing drove this specific outcome, like I at least know what's possible. Um, so I think reporting is the number one most important thing when I think about where marketing should be spending dollars. Yeah, for sure. Well, and everybody's so busy that they, like salespeople should be trying to set up appointments up front, but they're so busy and then we're so busy doing the show. And then, but you can't, we can't lose sight of the fact that, I mean, ultimately it is sales responsibility to try to, to close the business. But I also think that it's helpful for us to give reminders. I know we got in a situation where we were we were told we were doing sales job for them and that but then we were told like that we weren't doing enough to get sales to do their job kind of in the same like within a same span of like a couple months which have felt very strange to me. But yeah, but I think that there's like working as a team and having that understanding that sales knows that we're we're trying them, the company, but, you know, trying to help them get sales. Yeah. I think, the, you know, the number one thing is like, you have to have the tone from the top, you know, be consistent. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when we talk about lead follow-up, I think I've actually been super fortunate in the fact that um, of the, the last few organizations I've been with, like the lead follow-up on the sales has actually been like incredible. Like literally some of my sales peers have been putting together you know, follow-up packets seconds after that person had walked away from a trade show or, you know, after they left a dinner. And like they had, whether it was a solutions brief or whether they needed to set up a demo, you got to have a pretty good SLA. And again, like this harkens back to what I said at the beginning of the call, like if you don't give people what they want when they want it, they're going to go find it somewhere else. Mm -hmm. And so there's a, you know, there's a little bit of timing involved here to make sure it's, you're in the sweet spot, but like if you're not first, you're last. And so- yeah you know, making sure that there's a, a pretty well-documented SLA in place for lead follow-up. And, you know, uh, Megan, you and I talked uh, about this extensively, like, what does that SLA look like in, you know, pre-event activities? 
When do you start planning? When do you start kicking off outreach? When do you start kicking off, you know, booking venues and, you know, so on and so forth. Just like document that stuff as best you can. Yeah, for sure. All right. We're going to zoom out again. We're going to go a little big picture. We have two more, two more questions for you. Yes. Let's do it. <laughs> so as we've, we've heard today, you've had a progressive career in marketing. We're going to zoom out. We're going to go big picture. If you had to pick one marketing channel to use to drive sales, which one would you choose and why? I I would choose intimate, bespoke, in-person activations. Nice. I think those can take many different forms. You know, I, again, I'm gonna I'm gonna give a little bit of a uh, little bit of love to to my cable team. One of the things that we did this year is when we went to Money 2020, we made sure that we had dinners every single night. Regardless of whether or not we knew if we were going to fill them, we booked those restaurants in like June or July or something like that. And we hit the ground running in like, you know, late summer with starting to to fill. And then we also just like took a little bit of a gamble. And like we invited a dozen people to the Adele concert the Saturday before Money 20. And it's like, what can you do to just create an experiential activation for that person, right? Everybody's gone to enough dinners, right? But what can you do to just make it feel natural and organic? And so I think you have so much ability to customize that activation to however you need it to be. You can do a zillion different things and add on thought leaders or, you know, make it more high-end and more premium, you know, or just make it exciting and like build it around something else like, you know, Adele or, or F1 or whatever. I think that that to me is is probably right now what people are craving the most. It's, it's, it's intimate connection with people and not being sold to. And, you know, I, I often joke with people like I'm the best, worst marketer because I hate being sold to and advertised to and marketed to in some situations. And so you just really need to like take a step back, be honest with yourselves and understand like, are the people that I'm going after going to enjoy the thing that I'm planning to do or would something else make that experience better for them? Yeah, well, they're going to be at the event and not be sold to, but develop a relationship with you. And they're, because I've, I've also been on that side, then they're going to want to be like, so what do you guys do? Like, they're going to want to have a conversation with you so they don't feel bad about just taking advantage of having, getting to attend this really, this really cool thing. And so it just, it's that way to start that relationship. And then once they know what you do and if they need it, then you're going to be the one they, they go to for it. So, exactly. all right. Awesome. Okay. So our final question that we like to ask every guest is what is one business challenge you've experienced in your career and how did you overcome it? Or what did you learn from it that will help our friends out there? Oh man. Now, you know, talk about heady. This is, this is the headiest question of them all. Yeah. You know, I, I have some good funny ones. Um, and then I, I think you're probably some ones that are, you know, overplayed, you know, gotchas and oopses. And I think the, the most impactful one is like sometimes it the thing doesn't work out. And it's not because it wasn't the right idea. It's because either the market wasn't ready for it or you know the timing was off or whatever. And so I think the I won't go into specifics about it, but I think like the most important thing is to just be comfortable with understanding that there is no secret sauce. There is no silver bullet. Right. And like even the, the best of intentions, you know, might not, you know, pay off in the long run. And it's like when you go back and you, you do a, you know, either a return on ad spend analysis or an ROI or, or what have you, right? Not to get discouraged if it is one of these scenarios. And so, you know, oftentimes, you know, as marketers, you know, the budget is scrutinized, you know, sometimes rightfully so. But like sometimes, you know, there is a little bit of, you know, over scrutiny on like there was not an immediate payback for a thing. And, mm -hmm. you know, sometimes, you know, maybe the thing just took longer than expected to pay off. Right. And so just taking a step back, taking a deep breath, understanding that there are market factors that can sometimes impact these things. You know, again, especially in the macroeconomic environment that we're in right now, things that used to work before might not work anymore, either because of, you know, those reasons or, you know, that maybe that channel just isn't as big as it was. Uh, and it's just one of those things, right? We are constantly evolving. 
I've said multiple times, like marketers have to build for every eventuality and, you know, you have to be where everybody is all the time. And Mm -hmm. sometimes it's not possible. So, so yeah, I would just say be comfortable in knowing that sometimes just doesn't work out. Yeah. All right. I like that. Well, and I think Jen, as a social media manager, Jen can attest to the, sometimes they're required to do all of the things, be all of the things. (laughs) When I see a job description sometimes for marketing and it involves everything, I'm like, that is a job that five different people should be doing, you know, (laughs) all of the demand gen and the rev ops and the social and the blog writing and the, you know, all the the things. And you want to talk about, you know, social media is is a perfect example of what I just described. Like you are beholden to the algorithm all the time. And, Mm -hmm. you know, you at any given time don't know what the algorithm is going to do. You know, by the time you've launched your campaign, by the time that campaign's over, maybe the way that you've built your campaign isn't the way that it should have been built by the time it ended because, you know, they changed something. So yeah, like totally, you know, for any social media uh, marketing and PPC specialists out there listening, like you guys know exactly what we're talking about. Yeah, for sure. Well, you know, though, there is the thing about (laughs) social media marketing because it changes so fast that you can get in there and you can change things if you have the capacity and time to do that. But that's the whole other thing is, you know, if you're getting lumped into doing all these other tasks with all these other deadlines, that can be a hard thing to keep an eye on and tailor as you go along. So 100%. Like there have been multiple times in my career where people have asked me, like, what's the first hire that you would make? And, you know, depending on how much budget we're spending on paid media, like sometimes I'm like, hire a digital person tomorrow, because you need someone who has their finger on the pulse all the time and understanding like how to do bid adjustments and, you know, how has the algorithm changed? How we need to deliver the ads? Is there a different format that needs to be used? That's not something that you're going to know about, you know, in seven days time. Like that's something that you or or that's not something that you can afford to fix seven days after it rolls out. Like you've got to have somebody in there doing it on the fly. Yeah. Excellent. All right. This has been such an awesome conversation. And um, as I suspected, it went longer than <laughs> than anticipated or than that we allotted for. But yeah, but I have always say like whenever anyone says, how long should a podcast be? As long as the content is still good. Having said that, we know we, you know, drop off happens earlier. So if you're still listening, thank you <laughs> uh-huh. for being here um, at this stage in the show. I want to thank you, Stefan, for joining us today. Appreciate it. No, I appreciate you guys. Like I said, I have officially now joined the Making a Marketer Club. Do I get like a <laughs> pin or something or, or like a little coin that I can put on my desk? No, Jen's working on stickers. I am. Um, but you we you will get invited back for the reunion. So yeah. um, we we will kick off season eight, um, inviting all the guests back from season seven for a little round robin, which is actually where our our uh, standing question came from the, the last one. So we decided rather than asking for book recommendations for another season <laughs> that we'd ask something that is a little bit more deep. So... Awesome. All right. And thanks. And um, happy holidays, y'all. Miss Jen, thank you as always. Thank you. Thank you both. This has been wonderful today. All right. Awesome. This has been episode 138 of the Making a Marketer podcast, and we will catch you next time. Bye.